Please join me for a word of prayer. God, take my words and speak through them. Take our mind and think through them. Take our will and set them on fire for love of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King, whether you are in person, on the lawn, or online. We are in the midst of a sermon series on the love of God. I think the love of God is something that you and I can stand to think a little bit more about. And this Sunday, the abiding love of God. We'll look at the epistle reading, the, not the gospel reading, but the reading from 1 John. And we'll really focus on the first 12 verses, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. By way of introduction, I'm, I'm going to make a few obvious statements that will reach, uh, a, well, that will have a point. So, now, a few obvious statements. First, water is wet. Water is many things, but one of the primary characteristics of water is that it is wet. Water is fluid, it is clear. Any uh, biology major could tell us a lot of uh, more attributes of water. But one of the primary attributes of water is its wetness. Fill in the blank, water is, most of us would say, wet. Now the statement, water is wet, doesn't work in reverse. Wet is not water. There are plenty of things that are wet that are not water at all. So while water is wet, wet is not water. Why this exercise in logic? Well, because of 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 which has to be one of the most startling verses and important verses of the entire Bible. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. God is love. Love is not the only characteristic of God. God is holy. He is light. He is good. We could make a, a dictionary of all the attributes that apply to God. But love is the primary characteristic of God, like wetness is the primary characteristic of water. God is love, but just like everything that is wet is not water, everything that is love is not God. The statement does not work in reverse. Love is not God, but God is love. My theology professor at seminary told a funny, funny story. He had two young children, and his young children had a conversation that I never had as a young child. I guess it comes with being the, the son of a theology professor. These two children were talking about the nature of God, age seven and eight. And one child asks the other, what is God made of? And the dad, my professor, was about to intervene because of the potential heresy that could be unleashed. God is not made of anything. He is the maker of all things. He is neither composed of parts or portions. He is whole in himself, my theology professor was about to say. But then before he had a chance to intervene, this other child said, what's God made of? God is made of love. And my theology professor decided to bite his tongue. God is love. If you're following along in your point, in your sermon, which sermon notes, which are found on page 11, we move to point two, from a supreme reality to the supreme display of God's reality. Look at verses nine and verse 10 in the passage. Each, passage, each verse begins with this statement, in this, the love of God 
is revealed in this, again in verse 10. The author is telling us the primary way in which God manifested his love. He loved us, he displays his love in the following way. And in both of those verses, verses 9 and 10, there is another common phrase. In this, God loved in that he sent his son. And both verses tell us the results of God sending his son. Verse 9, God sent his son into the world so that we might live. And in verse 10, God sent his son into the world that he might be a propitiation for our sins. Now that word propitiation needs just a little bit of definition. To propitiate means to appease or satisfy. So Jesus made a propitiation for our sins in that he satisfied our debt before God. That is one way that the Bible talks about sin. A translation of the Lord's Prayer is forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. He satisfied our debt by making a propitiation on the cross for our sins. So one verse explains the other. Because he made a propitiation for our sins, we might live through him. And both his propitiation for our sin and our living in him are the result of his being sent to us. And his being sent to us is the expression of God's love for us. Makes sense? God displays his love in the sending of his son so that we might live in him by Jesus sacrificing himself for us. True love is always expressed in self-sacrifice. Do you remember the classic movie for all ages, The Princess Bride? The movie begins with the princess-to-be saying, farm boy, fetch me a pail of water. And the farm boy makes some small act of self-sacrifice. He picks up the pail of water. And then there is one great line of a movie full of great lines in which the princess realizes that one day when the farm boy was saying, as you wish, which is what the farm boy responded, what he was really saying was, I love you. True love is always expressed in sacrificial giving. Self-sacrifice being the ultimate expression. And this is true by, proved true by the opposite. If the fruit of love or the seed of love grows into the fruit of self-sacrifice, then the opposite is true as well. That the fruit of hatred will eventually grow into, excuse me, the seed of hatred will always grow into the fruit not of self-giving, but of taking. It grows into the fruit of murder. And this is made clear in 1 John chapter 3, as the author warns us against the example of Cain and Abel. We should not hate our brother because hatred leads to murder. That is verse 12 and 15 of chapter 3. The fruit of love is to sacrifice one's self. The fruit of hatred is murder, to take the life of one another. So our two opening points, God is love and his love is expressed through his own self-sacrifice. Now we move on to point three. If love is the essential quality, not the only quality, but the essential, the primary characteristic of God, then those who know God claim to be in a relationship with God ought to love one another. And this shows up several times in our passage. Verse 7, 
Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Again in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Back to my original analogy. If you encounter water, you get wet. If you encounter God, you get love. We cannot claim to be in a relationship with a loving God without in some ways being loving ourselves. It is simply not logical. We move to point four. From one essential characteristic of the people of God to one supreme revelation. And this is where the passage gets exciting. Verse 11. Not that it was not already exciting before, but I think this is especially uh, remarkable. Look at verse 11. Verse 12. No one has ever seen God. Now, the invisibility of God was a big problem for the Old Testament, for the people of God. Every other nation, every other people had gods you could see. So, for instance, Psalm 135 says this. It compares the gods of other nations with the God of Israel. And the gods of other nations are gods of silver and gold. They have mouths. They have eyes. They have ears. But the people of God did not have what the other nations had. Their God was invisible. Now, in two places, this author, John, addresses the problem of the invisibility of God. The author of this letter wrote four books of the New Testament. First, second, and third, John, three very short letters, and he also wrote the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John begins with these words. The Word became flesh, referring to Jesus, and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Skipping down to verse 18 of that same chapter, no one has ever seen God. Same exact phrase that we find in 1 John. No one has ever seen God, but here the author John addresses the problem of the invisibility of God with the incarnation of the Son. No one has ever seen God, but the only God, Jesus, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. But that is not the only place the author addresses the invisibility of God. He does so again in 1 John chapter 4. Again, the same phrase. No one has ever seen God, but here it is not the incarnation that is the solution to the problem of God's invisibility. It is the love of the people of God. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now that's just remarkable. Think of the number of things that the author could say. No one has ever seen God, but if you read your Bible, God will be known. Reading your Bible is important. If no one has ever seen God, but come to church, receive the sacraments and do those things and God will be revealed, absolutely. But that's not what the author says. What the author says is no one has ever seen God, but when our love resembles his love for us when he was here, God in some ways is known. Isn't that remarkable? As remarkable as it is, it has the ring of truth. Whenever you and I see someone loving someone else in the same sacrificial way that Jesus loved us when he was here, it always reminds us of him. One example, 
And again, this is from my favorite book. Sorry if you're tired of these illustrations from the Lord of the Rings, but this time it's from the movie. So a little variation. Uh, Lord of the Rings was made into a movie. And there's this great scene when one of the heroes, whose name is Gandalf, uh, he loves his friends in the same way that Jesus loved us. He loves his friends sacrificially. There's a great battle scene and Gandalf stands before some huge monster and he's on a bridge and under the bridge is a huge chasm. Gandalf wins and in doing so, he falls into the chasm himself. But as the director portrayed Gandalf, and I don't think that the director has any real faith commitments that I'm aware of, he portrayed Gandalf, arms spread wide, feet pointed, as if he were on the cross. It's almost as if the director couldn't help himself. Of course, when someone loves people in a sacrificial way, the way that Jesus loved us, it always reminds us of the one place where love was most clearly displayed. So that is how I explain this passage. A supreme reality that God is love, the supreme display of his love that he sent his son, one essential quality for the people of God, to love one another, and then one supreme revelation that belongs to the people of God. The invisible God is made visible when our love resembles his. Mark Twain was quoted as saying, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that trouble me, it's the parts of the Bible that I do understand that trouble me. And that proverb applies to this passage because I find this troubling. The author's logic is unavoidable. His premise, God is love. He reveals his love by self-sacrifice. Leads inevitably to his conclusions that we ought to love one another and we reveal him when our love resembles his sacrificial love. I understand this passage and it troubles me because I feel that I'm so far away from the type of self-sacrificial love that Jesus had for us when we were here. I think a more realistic goal for me rather than laying down my life for my friends is simply to be a halfway decent human being for half of the time. This command to love one another may leave us feeling like a small tube of spent travel toothpaste. Small in that I don't feel like I had a lot of self-sacrificial love to begin with and spent because what I did have is long since gone. And this command to lay down my life can seem like I'm being asked to just squeeze a little bit more toothpaste out of a tube that's already spent. But our passage ends with a very important word. It's a word we heard for our children's minute. It's a word we heard in our gospel reading. It's the word abide. It has to be one of the famous, if love is the favorite word of John, the author, abide is probably his second favorite word, abide. The tree abides in the, the branch abides in the tree. And the ending of First uh, John, our passage from this morning, we find that word again and again. By this we know that we abide in him. Verse 16, God is love. Whoever, love abides, whoever abides in love abides in God. Whoever abides in love in God abides in him. 
We are to remain or to abide with God like a branch abides, remains in a tree. And just like a branch gains its nourishment and nutrients from a tree, so we gain our spiritual nutrient, our nourishment by abiding in God. This is the great secret of the saints who seem to love so recklessly and so thoughtlessly with such an uncalculated love. Their secret was that they loved with a love that wasn't theirs to begin with. And that is quoted for you in your sermon notes by author Peter Kreeft. Their love for the people in their lives flowed from their connection or their continual abiding in God who is love. So I conclude this sermon with one image that has been helpful for me. And that is an image that is drawn from an old description of the church, which is the Mysterium Lunae, which is the church and in some way is the mystery of the moon. The mystery of the moon is that it may seem bright at times, but the moon is really just a dead, dark rock. It could not be darker. It only seems bright when it is exposed to the sun. But if it is exposed to the sun, it reflects a light that is not its own and often does so with as much brightness as the sun. You and I are like the moon. On our own, we are a dead, dark rock, a spent tube of toothpaste, a small tube at that. We have as much sacrificial love to give as can be squeezed out of this tube. But if we turn to the light, turn to God, abide in him, then we, like the moon, can shine with a light that is not ours. At risk of mixing my metaphors hopelessly, wouldn't it be great if we could be a tube of toothpaste opened at both ends? One end connected to God and abiding in him, and the other end pouring out that love to a world in need. If you want to get wet, get in the water. Water's wet. If you want to get love, get into God. God is love. Please rise.